1973, a group of indigenous artists formed a collective. The press called them the Indian Group of Seven. Their goal? To raise the profile of indigenous art. It was all or nothing. We're representing all our people. And create a permanent space in galleries for indigenous artists in Canada and around the world. That was really a rock star moment for me. I'm Soleil Lunier, and this is Among Equals, the history and legacy of the professional native Indian artists, Inc. Listen wherever podcasts are heard. Art Slice is a different dive into art history. We goof around, we curse, you learn from it, but don't expect a typical lecture. You're welcome. Welcome to Art Slice, a palatable serving of art history. <laughs> what? <laughs> what are you wearing? What? I'm Stephanie Duenas. And I'm, I can't find the microphone. And I'm Russell Shoemaker. Where's the microphone? Stephanie? Yes. Where are you? What are we talking about today? Today we will be discussing Alexander Calder's Silver Bedhead from 1946, commissioned by Peggy Guggenheim, which I am... Assuming you already know a thing or two about because you are wearing an imitation of her, of her legendary bat sunglasses. I don't know what you're talking about. It was sunny out today. I forgot my <laughs> sunglasses. I made some sunglasses. What? What of it? Okay, you just whipped up a pair of sunglasses yeah, like just a, whipped like up a some salad. Sunglasses. Okay. Yes. Just threw some things yeah, together. That's called what happens it a day. when you're an artist, Steph. You can just whoop stuff up. Whoop stuff up. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Sure. All right. Okay. Well, maybe. Well, maybe we should just move on. Get, get on with it. Okay. Well. Okay. So those sunglasses kind of sum up Peggy. These my sunglasses. Sure, your sunglasses because they are one of a kind and they are unforgettable. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Just like me. Um. Exactly. So just like you, she was quite the character, and not like you, she was extremely influential, and she well, had ar- arguably. That's true. I guess it depends what the scale and scope is. Yeah. Right. Okay. I could have a lot of influence in small doses, and those could add up to be a, a huge influence. Okay. You don't know. Maybe you're. I'm still on the trajectory be- of my okay. life. You're judging her whole life. I've just started mine. True. Maybe you're aspiring to reach Peggy status. I'm forging my own path. I don't have to aspire to to to. Okay. Okay. All right. So back, back Peggy. Let's talk about Peggy. I can't. Can I take no. these off? I can't see you. I'm sure you can see because they're sunglasses, and you whipped them up just no, right. Well, I know there's can. no there's no like holes in them. Okay, so Peggy had a hand in all the, sun and the careers of many modern artists that we know today. So, listeners, this episode is going to be a world building episode. Okay, so get out okay. your notebook, your paper, your pen. Sticky notes, whatever you need. Whatever you need. We are going to be introducing a lot of characters, including Alexander Calder, who made this piece that was commissioned by Peggy. Peggy also exhibited many, many, many artists in her lifetime. So I have a list here of many of those artists so we can get a sense of Peggy's reach, if you will. Okay. And we're going to read them. And Russell, I think you might want to take off your Peggy sunglasses for this. 
Listeners, we highly recommend that you go to our website to see all of the images and videos we discuss in today's episode, and that's artslicepod.com. Or you can go to our Instagram and see some of the images at artslicepod. Okay, Russell, I've split this list. I'm going to take one, and you take the other. Okay, we're going to read them at the same time. It's kind of yeah. like a, a little race. Yeah. Ready? Piet Mondrian, George Virginia Brock, Admiral, Pablo Picasso, Jackson Pollock, Mark Rothko, John Arp, Robert John Cocteau, De Niro Sr., Lenore Feeney, Frida Kahlo, Moret Oppenheimer, Rufino Tamayo, Kay Sage, Gino Severini, Salvador Dali, Luis Bourgeois, Tungi, Joseph Cornell, Hans Hoffman, Kandinsky, Irene Rice, Maria Pereira, William Vera de Kooning, Mark Chagall, Constantine Juan Miro, Rita Kern-Larsen, Wolfgang Palin, Diuna Barnes, If you're there on a quiet day, you can hear footsteps echoing, and when you're near the windows facing the canal, you can hear the waves lapping up the sides of the palazzo. There are masterpieces everywhere you look. A Pollock here, a Picasso there, even Peggy's furniture are works of art. I would even say those terrazzo floors are as mesmerizing as the works hanging on the walls. But then there's the bedhead, a sculptural composition made up of elegant, floating silver lines hanging in a room with windows facing the canal. This piece served as a headboard above Peggy's bed when the space it lived in was her bedroom. This is Peggy Guggenheim, a woman so obsessed with art that she couldn't settle for anything less than fabulous for a headboard while living in Venice, Italy, a city that is a work of art in itself. So this is Peggy's palace, Mm. or palazzo. Peggy Guggenheim was not your typical wealthy art collector who will either hide their art jewels in their castle or their palazzo and or store it in a bank vault where no one can appreciate them. But it could uh, appreciate and value, Stephanie. It's like keeping a stock in your back pocket so you can buy that fifth home when you need to. Yeah, but no one can appreciate it. And like art was meant to be seen and to be displayed. No, but I saw a lot of work in people's homes when I would pick up work from collectors when I worked in a gallery back in the day. So we would borrow work for exhibits and they were nice enough to lend them to us. So it would be very normal to see a Picasso just hanging in the living room next to a bad couch, you know, an ugly couch. An ugly couch. Or I saw a Louis Bourgeois once on top of a kitchen countertop on top of like some receipts, I think. Great, as a paperweight. (laughs) Kind of a paperweight, yeah. Must be nice, must be nice. Yeah, that's a word for it. Okay, so Peggy was a little bit like that, but she lived in her museum, which was her home. So she decorated with these pieces by artists that you would now find in any modern art museum. Mm -hmm. But she let visitors in to her home to check out the works, to visit them, right? Okay, so big difference there. Huge. While she was still alive, mind you, not like, oh, I'll let the regular folks in. She's letting the civilians in. No, yeah, she's well and alive. She's letting people in. I mean, no, she's probably not mingling with them. She, I think she would probably go up to the roof and sunbathe. Stay away from the (laughs) civilians. So, Russell. Stephanie. Do you recall Kandinsky? I do. Vasily Kandinsky, he was one of the first abstract artists. We covered him in the uh, the first episode, A Haystack Feeling. Did you say Vasily? Kandinsky, yes. That's like the pasta? Yeah. No. Okay. It's Vasily. 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 Not Vasily. No, don't be silly. Glad we got that. But yeah, I remember, I remember him. Peggy gave him his first one-man show in England. Okay. And she featured Leonora Carrington and Frida Kahlo in the first all-women exhibition in New York City. New York City. New York City. Basically. Wait, a minute, wait, 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 wait. 
I think Frida had some sharp words for LC. Were they both there? I gotta know. Was there she, some drums? She did have some words, and yeah. I don't think they were in the gallery at the same time, okay. if at all. Okay. Because I'm imagining, you know, the like <laughs> the screen where you select your player before they battle in like Mortal Kombat. So you have, <gasps> oh my god, you know, they're just doing that movement over and over again. You have they're like, getting ready. Yeah. To, like, like, well, it's just like the animations just looping. Okay, okay. So you see LC and she's standing behind like a, a bunch of hyenas, a wall of hyenas, <laughs> and she's flipping a nickel, you know? It's like looking real mean. She's got that witch hat hair. Okay. And then Frida's on the other end. She's in her wheelchair. And okay. what's that? There's spikes on the wheelchair. <laughs> and what's that? It's super communist baby floating above her. What? Oh with my his Karl God, Marx what? beard and his sickle just ready to pounce. Okay. Okay. Did that happen? Did they throw down? Listeners, Russell's just kind of doing the same movement, the loop, loop, back and forth, back and forth. That would have been quite the spectacle. Okay. (laughs) Can you imagine? I'm thinking about a cartoon scruffle where you just see like (laughs) a blur of arms and legs. Little hyena paws. Hyena paws, tufts of fur. Little flowers flying everywhere. Frida's flowers, a part of her skirt, and then Leonora's loafers. I don't know. I know she wears loafers. (laughs) I like those loafers. So just, just like a big old blur. Anyway, if you walk into any modern art wing in any museum, Peggy likely had a hand in introducing those artists to the general public. Mm -hmm. But she didn't just collect and sell these artists' work. She knew them. She partied with them. She knew all the tea. Sometimes she discovered them. And sometimes she may have had one or two or three or four or five affairs (laughs) with a lot of them. Peggy's a complicated character. She is. But I think it takes someone who isn't afraid of crossing societal norms to carve a pathway for what is considered unconventional. So at this time, these artists were considered radical or worse, they were just thought of as these weird amateur artists, right? And now they're part of this like art historical canon, but it's really easy to forget how shocking many of them were. And Peggy, Mm -hmm. she wasn't like afraid to like chill with them and hang out with them. Well, she also had a weird life growing up. Like Mm -hmm. she was ultra wealthy, but when she was really young, she worked at a bookstore in Manhattan. It was like an avant-garde bookstore. (laughs) So it was, yeah, so it was like out there, right? It was kind of like art that was unconventional, right. essentially, is what avant-garde means. It's yeah. on the fringe, right? It's like, if you're cool, you know, you know. Yeah, it's an, it's an unmarked <laughs> door. You got to, like, <laughs> knock a certain way to get in, and then you have to get, step into a telephone booth, and then the telephone booth flips upside down. Okay. And yeah. then you got to go through, like, this little hamster maze. And then finally, when you get there and you ring the electric doorbell, okay. they let you in, and that door has a jointed cardboard Santa Claus. Okay. The little hula hoop. Oh. And you gotta you gotta make his legs move in a particular direction. Okay. <laughs> but you yeah you get inside and there it is. There's the bookstore. Okay. They don't sell many books. Okay. Yes, they do. Yes. They, okay. They well, don't get the- a lot of foot traffic. Is what I'm saying. Okay. Well, there's I a lot know. of skeletons you have to cross to like get to the door. <laughs> okay. All right. Um. Maybe not this not this store. Um. This one also doubled as an art gallery, and it was it was at this bookstore that Peggy fell in love with art, and she also fell in love with the artist making them. Right. She's very interested in the artist. She thought they were interesting people. But this was her introduction to the art world and how weird and I don't know progressive it could be. Okay. So her life became consumed with art. Right. And she mm-hmm. would spend her whole life chasing that thrill. That sweet sweet high. That art that art high you gotta boil boil a painting down inject it into your veins oh my gosh okay all right so don't do that Uh, (laughs) there would be times in peggy's life where she would try to fit herself into a normal life to you know raise a family or to be a wife but she would always come back to art
The early morning sun is in your eyes as it begins illuminating the palm trees swaying above and the rolling mountains beyond. The sound of musical horns and drums gilds the air among the chatter of the crowd as they buzz with excitement. But then the sound of horses clomping grows louder and louder, and then one after another, horse-drawn floats all decorated with a variety of flowers and grasses pass by Lil Calder. He's never seen anything like it. There was something about the driver guiding the horse's movement, their legs galloping in unison, and they were gone as soon as they came. But the image of the large and magnificent creatures was one that impressed his memory and would find its way into his work years later. Okay, listeners, so Lil Caller is watching Pasadena's Tournament of Roses roll by for the first time in 1907. So he's just moved to Pasadena, California, all the way from Pennsylvania on the East Coast. This is not the Southern California as we know today, though. But those relaxed California vibes were definitely there. Okay, are you sure about that? It is 1907. There is a bunch of dust still from, I mean, the, from the dirt roads. Yeah, yeah. It, it comes with the environment. It comes with the nature, I think. Okay. So totally. Okay. <laughs> that probably helped I mean, the you're Cali-born, so I will, I will defer to you. That's right. Thanks for reminding me. I am Cali-born. Thank you very much. <laughs> so Lil Calder's... Well, okay, Sandy's. We're going to call Lil Calder Sandy from of all here the dust. on out. <laughs> no. That's like on his body from... No. You're just kind of mistaking it for sand. No, 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 no. So his full name is Alexander Calder, and he actually went by Sandy. He was known by Sandy. He went by Sandy. Yeah, I mean, like, they, not... Everybody thought he had sandy blonde hair from all the dust. <laughs> not quite. Okay. Not quite. I could see that, maybe. But right. professionally, he was known as Alexander Calder, but he was known amongst his family and friends by right. Sandy. So we're going to call him Sandy. Okay. okay? All right. Sandy's parents were bohemian artists, so he spent a lot of time around their artist friends. These artists would probably be considered more craft artists, since what they make has a functional or design purpose. Mm. So this is something that hasn't really come up yet in Art Slice. The difference between fine art and craft art. It's really, it's pretty subjective. The pantry mon seemed to be hungry. Okay, I know we were on vacation last week, but I left them that automated feeder. They should be awesome. They don't, they don't even have mouth stuff. They just absorb it into their bloodstream. It's really strange. And kind of, I mean, they're cute, but they're also a little bit horrifying. So I'm a little surprised they're so hungry. Okay, let's go to the Art Slice Pantry. Vamos. Okay, let's, let's go. go. So the difference between fine art and craft art, it's really pretty subjective, and they overlap a lot. But the most general distinction would be craft wouldn't be concerned with speaking of pain through symbols and subversive imagery like, say, Frida Kahlo did. Craft would be closer to Charles Birchfield's wallpaper work, which was a proficient depiction that could be used to decorate your home, or it could be something functional like a handmade ceramic cup or some jewelry. The word craft is also used sometimes to discuss the technical quality of an artist's work, the skill and care that artist puts into that work. A good example of this is when we talked about Edvard Munch way back in episode 3, we thought the scream was poorly executed. In other words, we discussed how the craft was subpar, but we thought a lot of his other pieces were made with a high level of craft, 
even though they were similar to the Scream stylistically speaking. So craft in this definition means it is executed in a highly intentional and skilled way, similar to the other definition of craft, which is craft art, which would mean like a well-made piece of jewelry, for example. The takeaway from all of this is that craft matters no matter what kind of work you're making or your stylistic approach as an artist. You can make sloppy abstract work and still have a high level of craft. You can make traditional craft style work, a la ceramic cups or jewelry, with a poor level of craft. Whatever it is you make, whether that is craft art or fine art, whatever you want to call it, just have pride in your craft. Russell, thank you for that art slice pantry entry. Our little Pontremon's tummies have been satiated once again. You know, they could be a little bit difficult to deal with, but overall, <laughs> listeners, we love them. We love them. Okay, let's get back to Pasadena. All right, so you have to imagine that while Sandy's parents were working in their studios, they set up a little studio space for <laughs> Sandy. Okay, like a play kitchen, a little plastic <laughs> kitchen that the, you give the kiddos. A little artist studio plastic. Yeah. So there's like colorful plastic tools. <laughs> you get a plastic hammer, plastic nails. You have a plastic miter box that you kind of saw a fake wood piece in half, and have, like pre-cut. There's a couple problems with that scenario, okay, as much as I love it. Okay. Um, number one, plastic wasn't invented You yet. don't know that. You're right. I wasn't there. You don't know You're that. right. You're right. Number two, he actually was working with sheet metal and wire. Okay. Like the so real just deal. the sharpest material ever. <laughs> just little baby fingers touching the sharpest material ever. Well, I mean, he... they don't have much blood in their body stuff. Okay. They're a little bit smaller. Okay. Well, they, he probably had gloves. Well, what's going to happen if he hemorrhages? He was fine. All right. He was fine. So when he was 11, he made this little rocking duck out of sheet metal. So you would tap it and then the distribution of the weight would make it rock back mm. and forth, back and forth for a little while on its own. Sounds a little bit like a kinetic sculpture. Yeah. Doesn't it? Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Interesting. This little duck was so important to him that he made sure it was in his retrospective, which listeners, a retrospective for an artist is showing a selection of their work from their entire career up to that point. So usually you don't put the <laughs> painting you painted for your mom in third grade that she like says is going to be worth millions one day into the retrospect. <laughs> but he chose to put this little duck in. I mean, that's pretty interesting. It's an interesting choice. No finger turkeys here. He also, aside from making rocking ducks and little animals out of sheet metal, he also made miniature jewelry for his little sister's dolls. Okay. Yeah, he used copper wire and beads that he found on his long walks in Pasadena. They found in a basement, Uh, yeah, that he was peering through the window, I know. I know. He's got those tough hands from working with with that sheet metal, getting all those cuts, those nicks and cuts, so he can just break glass with his bare hands (laughs) as a little 11-year-old and just slide in like a slippery, slippery snake. (laughs) Into the basement, steal all the copper wiring while everyone's asleep, slip out. Okay. He seems like a good brother, but the neighbors aren't so happy. I would say that was that would be pretty sweet. So while Sandy was surrounded by all of this creative encouragement, all this creative energy, he actually decided instead to study mechanical engineering Mm. once he grew up and he went to college. While that might seem kind of random, just think of that little rocking duck. So with that engineering experience, he actually ends up landing a job in the Navy. Mm. So he's on a naval ship in 1922, sailing from New York to San Francisco via the Panama Canal. Quote, it was early one morning on a calm sea off Guatemala when over my couch, a coil of rope, I saw the beginning (laughs) of a fiery red sunrise on one side and the moon looking like a silver coin on the other. Of the whole trip, this impressed me most of all. It left me with a lasting sensation of the solar system, Hmm. end quote. So 
He is just struck by the balance of the moon and the sky at the same time. I mean, that had to be a magical, magical, like once-in-a-lifetime moment. You have to be near the equator, first of all, and then you have to catch it at the right time. That's that's pretty phenomenal. So you have yeah. to be by the equator, right time of day, right time of year. You have to be awake. The weather has to be clear. That's five, <laughs> at least five that's different true. things that could make it or break this moment, right? Mm. So he is so moved that he decides to abandon his Navy engineering career and pursue art after this experience. Mm -hmm. He's just that moved. All right. So about the same time that Calder has this life-altering experience out on the equator at sea, Peggy's back in New York City. New York City. New York City. She's also had a life-altering change, a change to her pockets, if you will. She's inherited a fortune. Got some uh, Got some of that E4GP. Okay, I guess. That's um, a Ford gold poundage. She has set sail for Paris, naturally, right? How does she get all this money, you ask? Peggy's mm. papa, Benjamin Guggenheim, died on the Titanic. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so he 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 died when she was only 13. And so Peggy wasn't allowed to touch that inheritance until she turned 21. So when she did, though, when she did inherit it, she got $2.5 million. And that was back in the day. Today it would be upwards of $36 million. After so he, a small home, a small home in a modest California. Home, a modest, modest home in yeah. California. After he died, Peggy just rejected that bougie lifestyle that okay. she was born into. She kind of became a little rebel. She shaved her eyebrows off. So okay. she was she was born different and she was really trying to <laughs> lean into being different. Okay, by shaving her eyebrows right, off. Right, okay. right. So do you okay. remember that bookstore that she worked at? Yeah. Okay, well, so... I imagine the shaved eyebrows, that's part of the secret code. Like, they got to rub their faces together in uh, concentric circles in what? order to get into the, the secret bookstore. Okay, okay, maybe. A lot of rubbing. A lot of rubbing <laughs> in these secret Stop bookstores. Stop saying rubbing. Stop saying rubbing. <laughs> okay, maybe. All right, well, anyway, while she worked there, she started running around with these artists and authors. And so in 1920, she decides to do what all of the artists are doing, and that is to move to Paris. Mm. It's where all the uh, eyebrowless vanguards go, Stephanie. I guess so. Okay. I mean, it is the 20s now, right? Very thin <laughs> eyebrows are in vogue. I thought they were thick at this time. Mm-mm. Okay. All right. No, not at all. All right. Super thin. Okay, listeners, let's go back to Sandy. He's left that engineering job, and now after a couple of years of studying art, he decides that he too should head to Paris. So we keep ending up in Paris, but as a reminder, listeners, Paris was the center of the art world. For now. So it was a booming time for Paris. Parisians and expats alike were just living it up. Living it up. Money is flowing. Absinthe is flowing. <laughs> Artists are flocking there because they can drink absinthe in this exciting atmosphere. So, you know, they're all they're all going there. And why wouldn't you, right? Sounds like a good creative time. Yeah. So Sandy's in Paris and he's hanging out with all these artists. At this point, he has mostly given up on the sculptures that he loved to make in his childhood, and he's now painting in oil. Yeah, he's painting your normal stuff, still lifes, self-portraits, city landscapes, horrifying clowns that are not connected to the still life that he is painting. They're just kind of yeah, floating yeah. there. It's kind of weird. Kind of disconnected from the general. Yeah, anyway, they're not bad. They're just nothing really that special. Right, right. But his love for the circus shows through. He mm -hmm. loved the circus as a child, okay. especially trapeze artists and horses and just all of the movement and choreography that goes with the yeah, circus act. He's really into movement, I think is what we're getting at, <laughs> listeners. So in Paris, he starts going to the circus 
circus again. A little bit yes. different. He's like, okay, this is a different vibe <laughs> entirely. And he goes to the French circus. French circus is it's like the dark arts of the circus. Okay. You know what I mean? There's a okay. there's a clown experiencing ennui. There's lots of tears. What was that? Les ennui du <laughs> le clown. What? Le bouffon. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What? Whoa, whoa, whoa. I know a little French. You speak French? I know. No, I don't speak French. I know a little French. Okay? Okay. I watched Muzi as a kid. What is Muzi? Tapes of Muzi. It's like a really old French language thing for kids that I found, I think, in a church basement. Okay. So it was before my time, but. Love it. it. Okay. Yeah. I am Muzi. impressed. Listeners, okay. we are both learning in real time, you and However, me, about Russell's French. However, if I'm French on a flight case. to Montreal <laughs> and I'm sitting next to a French couple, I will absolutely forget how to say excuse me, just in pure panic. It's, but it's. I just, know what it is. Okay. I just forgot it. I just said it louder. I was like, excuse me. <laughs> if I say it louder, they'll understand what I mean. Okay. Joking. Okay. He's joking, everybody. I'm not. That happened. That's real. No, but okay. All right. All right. Moving on. Let's move on from that buffoon. Just kidding. <laughs> All right. So Sandy begins making wire sculptures of the acrobats, the circus performers, the animals, and the erotic dancers hmm. that he's seeing at these events. So he would capture the figures in mid-motion with wire like you would with pencil on paper, except that the air was his canvas and it was infinite. These works remind me of art that is somewhere in between 3D and 2D work. They look like drawings, but he's drawing with wire, like Stephanie was saying. And that wire is then placed on a small pedestal. I mean, these have to be like five, six inches tall. I'm not sure how tall they are. They're they're bigger. Yeah, oh, they're a little bigger. I mean, they're not that big, but they're bigger than that. Yeah, but they, they look like very minimal drawings turned into sculptures, if that makes sense. So he's taking the wire and he's turning it, twisting it mm-hmm. in order to look like these forms in yes. movement. He's thinking about how all of the performers and animals move at the circus, right? Mm. So he starts making toys. <laughs> and with these toys, he's playing with oh different ways that objects can move. Then, then Sandy decides he's going to make his own miniature circus. Uh, what? Miniature circus. No. Cirque du Calder. No. Let's go to Cirque no. du Calder. No. Let's go. Vamonos. Okay, so he's got a suitcase. He's got two suitcases. Oh. Say Calder on them. Does he really need to show that he's unpacking everything? <laughs> Someone's yelling in French. Is that the ringleader? What? <gasps> There's a horse! The fuck? There's a horse! How is it moving? I don't know. <laughs> what? <gasps> what is that? What <laughs> is that? A, little a, da- a dancing, dancing mouse? rat. Oh my gosh. It's oh standing gosh. on its hind legs. It's got, oh my God, it's got six feet. He's pulling it with a wire and yeah. it's making all its little legs move okay. forward. Okay, okay. We what got is like this? a Pegasus on a, on a, I don't even know what that is, a cart. It's, what is, what? Oh He's blowing God. something now. What? Is that There's trombone? a little trumpet. Oh, it's He's a trombone. He dropped a cigarette. He dropped a cigarette? I think stop, so. stop the car. He's going to set this guy on he fire. He stuck a cigarette into this clown's face and now he's lighting the cigarette. That's a bear. It's a bear? I think it's a bear. Why does it have orange hair? He's puffing. <gasps> oh, it's a balloon. Caller's blowing into this tube that is blowing a balloon through the doll. And listeners, Calder is right behind these. It's not like it's uh like he's hiding behind some screen. <laughs> he's laying behind <laughs> His face is turning red. He's blowing this giant <laughs> balloon out of this bear. No, but he's he's pulling on a string that's yeah. making them like go back and forth, back and forth. That's awesome. Okay, oh. now now you're just getting lazy, Calder. <laughs> he's just moving them with his hands at this point. <laughs> Why are they clapping? That is not what I was expecting. Uh, I mean, this is all very silly, right? But working in the studio doesn't have to be this stoic, ultra 
high pressure time, it should be fun, right? Yeah. Allowing yourself as an artist to just try whatever the fuck you want to out can actually really open up a lot of possibilities for you because you're not just an artist. You're also a creative problem solver. And by giving yourself problems to solve, even if they're just silly, like circus problems, you're actually allowing yourself to experiment. And that experimentation can open up the doorways for you. So all these like magical art things can happen. Right. For Sandy, all of this playful studio experimentation led him to notice that what he was really interested in maybe wasn't circuses or dancers or frolicking animals. (laughs) But what do all those have in common? Movement. Okay. He begins to make what he is known for, which is Mobiles. Mobiles, yeah. So, no. No, Russell, I'm interrupting you because okay. I know you started, you're starting to say, no, not mobile phones. Okay. Not wasn't an automobile. Yeah, wasn't thinking Not that a baby either. mobile. We definitely wasn't thinking that one. Okay. Well, so <laughs> when Sandy was the kiddo and he made that rocking duck, what he was really making was a- twisted, gnarled hands. Okay. All right. Calloused so, hands. Lots of little glass stuck in them. We don't know. We don't know that. <laughs> Oh, poor guy. I really hope he was wearing gloves. more scabs in their hands. What he was really making was a kinetic sculpture, which, Russell, you alluded to earlier. Mm -hmm. That is a type of sculpture that's based on balance and Mm -hmm. equilibrium. So unlike traditional sculpture, which at this time was pretty much static and dense. Yeah, I mean, well, think of Augusta Savage's piece, which we loved. We loved that. It was more traditional sculpture, right? It was this big monolithic piece. Doesn't really move. Does not move. You move around (laughs) it. (laughs) There you go. Sandy's mobiles, though, they are in constant motion and they are constantly changing their shape. They're made up of abstract shapes on these long, elegant lines that and kind of rods. look like a drawing. In a way, yes. Yeah, once and, again, like his little wire sculptures. Yes, but it's in the air and they pivot with the slightest current mm. of air and that lets the shapes twist and turn and twirl. Very beautiful, very elegant, and it's very similar to baby mobiles for reference, but his came first. They did? I'm not going to lie. I have walked past so many sandy mobiles. Right. In museum. I mean, I've probably seen like half a dozen at least and just walking right by them. I don't think I've ever seen them move. Really? Like ever. I'm pretty sure, Steph, they place them where they won't move very much so they don't have to pay to preserve them. <laughs> well... I've certainly seen them move. Okay. Yeah, at least once. But we'll get to that. We'll get to that. So Sandy's mobiles vary in size. Some are meant to live in a small indoor space, like a wealthy collector's home. Mm. Some are large and were meant to be outdoors, like outdoor sculptures. Mm. The mobile arms and rods are usually slender. And the shapes that are attached to them are geometric or organic. They kind of look like guitar picks, like very (laughs) strange guitar picks. Yes. Actually, yes. That's good. So Sandy had a very minimal palette for most of his work. His sculptures, his mobile whatever else he made. Yeah, they they all had very stripped down colors. They were very, you know, they'd be orange or blue or green or black. Maybe it's a combo. A of, combo of, of those, those, but they're not like, there's no gradation. There's no fluctuation from color to color. It's just a solid color per piece. They are often displayed above your head or in an atrium where it might be kind of easy to miss. Yeah, they kind of look like mid-century modern lawn art, these mobile pieces. They have a very minimal design to them. Yeah. They, like I said, they look like minimal drawings in a way. If they're not in front of a white wall, you might miss them. Like yeah. if, if the place that they're installed is too noisy, like there's too much visual noise around it, mm. then you're going to miss them. Yeah. And I may have very well walked past several, not even realized it. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I was kind of meh about Sandy's work before yeah. experiencing them in person, only by seeing them in photographs. Okay. I know this sounds terrible, but <laughs> don't worry. I got to experience one firsthand. Um, okay. I had to protect an out of control Calder Mobile one. Okay. So it's the opposite of not moving. It's the opposite. Opposite of not moving, moving too much and definitely experiencing what 
the opposite of what you're <laughs> describing. Okay, okay. I'm, I'm curious to hear about this. One day we were extremely busy and the museum was crowded and it was super windy that day. And as more people came in, they kept opening the doors on either side of this mobile. <laughs> Creating it, like a vortex. <laughs> literally. Yeah. Like, I felt like five different gale winds would come in every time <laughs> the door would open. These mobiles are supposed to move like nice and elegant and slow and just gracefully. No, no, no. This thing going was, crazy. Was, going haywire. was turning. And yeah, it was just, it was spinning <laughs> almost out of control. So you're dodging pedals, you're barking at tourists trying to get them out of the way. I mean, this was for everyone's safety, okay? Yeah. My my body was somehow going to shield this, yeah. this sculpture that was wider and taller than me. I was scared. I was scared for the mobile, but it's pretty hardy. Moral of the story, Russell, they move. All their mobiles Be careful. Move. Be careful. Stand back. Don't underestimate how fast it can turn. Okay. Okay. So be all. scared. Be a little scared of the colder mobiles. Have a healthy respect. Yeah. And like fear. you would for a bear. Like <laughs> for you're wa- it. Listeners, when you walk into a modern art wing and you think there might be a mobile there, start clapping. What? Hey, mobile. <laughs> hey, mobile. Just to alert yourself to its presence so it doesn't act out of fear. Going to alert the guards and you might hey, be mobile. removed and possibly banned. All right, so let's fast forward to the late 1930s. At this point, Peggy has lived several lives. She had a very complicated personal life that we are not really going to get into this time around because it it overshadows her story. Peggy is going to be a reoccurring character in the art sliceiverse, so don't worry. Peggy has been mulling over whether to open an art gallery or to start a publishing company. All that, all those mills. All those mills, All the mills she's carrying around. Burning okay. holes in her pockets. All right. So <laughs> she was neither a writer, nor an artist, nor an art historian, but mm. she's got these big ideas. She's got the right? money, though, right? Got the that's, money that's and got all the big you really ideas. Need in, in, uh, in this world. <laughs> okay. Well, she goes with the ladder. She decides to open an art gallery. And I think maybe Marcel Duchamp nudged her a bit. Here's someone with a boatload of money who wants to put it towards some creative good, right? And then here's Marcel, like whispering in her ear. Invest in the arts, Peggy. That's all fine and good, Steph. But who the hell is Marcel Duchamp? Oh, who's Marcel Duchamp? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Another so... another character in the art sliceiverse. Yes. Okay. Marcel Duchamp is probably best known for his work, New Descending a Staircase, which is a painting from 1912. And then later he would become known for a totally different work called Fountain <laughs> from 1917, which is just a urinal. That's all I'm going <laughs> to say about it for now. He was an artist who did his own thing entirely, but he walked amongst all these different groups of artists in Paris, like the Surrealists, the Dadaists, and he would become this crucial figure for the conceptual artwork to come in the following decades. So yes, Marcel introduced Peggy to all of these different facets of the Parisian art world. Let's just say without Marcel, Peggy wouldn't have discovered many of the artists that she ended up collecting. It helps if you know the right people. <laughs> Isn't that true, though? Everywhere. Every unfortunately, facet yes. of your life, on, yeah. unfortunately. So the following year, Peggy opened her first gallery for modern art in London called Guggenheim Jeune, which is, means young in French. Mm. So she begins collecting works of art. She starts with buying at least one piece from each of her exhibitions at her gallery. While Guggenheim Jeune was popular, Peggy decides to close it after a year because she is already thinking about bigger ideas, like a full-fledged museum, but it's not what you're thinking. It's not the museum in New York City. New York City. New York City. All right, so Peggy may have been inspired by the Baroness Hilla von Riebe. Baroness. We got a Baroness now? We got erotic dancers, we got a circus maker, <laughs> ringleader, calder, I don't know. Uh, we got uh, eyebrowless ladies rubbing their faces to and fro. 
<laughs> okay, yes. And we got a baroness now. Like like we mentioned before, listeners, I hope your seatbelts are fastened, okay? Get, just get ready. Yeah, get out that notepad. Baroness Hill of Onribe was... McIntyre. Excuse me? Hmm? What was that? <laughs> what was Nothing. that? Baroness okay. Hill of Onribe McIntyre. Okay, well, she was Peggy's uncle's art advisor. Her uncle was Solomon Guggenheim. Mm. He was a lifelong art collector, and he had recently opened what is now known as the Guggenheim Museum in 1939. Designed by Frank Lloyd Wright, along with the Baroness Hilla's direction. And she actually had envisioned the Guggenheim Museum in New York City, New York City, as a museum (laughs) temple for abstract art. Okay, so Baroness Hilla, she had opened (laughs) up the Museum of Non-Objective Painting in a former automobile showroom. We'll just call it the Monop. The Monop's (laughs) walls were pleated gray velour, right? It's like straight out of a David Lynch film. Sorry, is this a juicy couture track? And had what was that? Like a a juicy couture track suit from the early 2000s. The the butts that say juicy. Yep. I had ridded your brain of it. Ridded my brain of those (laughs) and now you've entered them back into my brain reverse. Anyway, the Monop's walls were pleated gray velour and had thick gray carpet. They would play classical music and they would burn incense. You're supposed to go in there and experience the sights and sounds of abstract work, of non-objective work. So Baroness Hilla envisioned abstract art as this mystical language, and she wanted a space where a gallery goer could click into that feeling, that vibe, right? So listeners, the Monop became the Guggenheim. Yeah, under Baroness Hilla's direction. So they moved from a little automobile showroom to a giant museum temple. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. In New York City. Quite the story. New York City. New York City. In August of 1939, with Nazi Germany beginning to close in on Poland... So it sounds like our old friend, Mr. America, Henry Ford, <laughs> his periodicals weren't that uh, unpopular after all. I guess not. Seems like He's he making was, it across the pond. He was on to something. Global distribution. Okay. What a good guy. <laughs> okay. Peggy, along with a curator friend, makes a list of all of the artists that they would like to include in this new museum. And she leaves London for Paris to start collecting and gathering these artworks. So there's so much going on here, listeners. Okay, France is becoming more paranoid about the Spanish Civil War that is happening next door in Spain, right? And now they have to deal with the encroaching Germans. Right, so they are sandwiched between the two. Spain's on one side and Germany's on the other. So France became stricter about the refugees and foreigners living in this country. And remember, listeners, Paris was the epicenter for artists from all over the world, including artists who came from Germany, who had already fled due to the rising Nazi regime. I mean, think no further than Kati Orna, Fusili Kandinsky, (laughs) and, you know, we talked about Max Ernst. So these are all characters that we've already discussed. If you remember our Three Witches episode, artists were beginning to flee to wherever they could. Sandy himself had also headed back to the United States, but before he left, he was actually commissioned to make a war protest piece for the 1937 World Exposition in Paris that was supported by the Spanish Republic government. So the leftists, the good guys, the, the Antofash Franks. <laughs> the piece was called Mercury Fountain, and it was exhibited alongside Pablo Picasso's epic Guernica painting, as well as Juan Miro's The Reaper. And don't worry, listeners, we will absolutely cover these pieces in the future. Wink. Winkity wink, wink, wink. All right, let's get back to Peggy. Peggy took off her Paris in August, but by September, with the imminent war looming, she realized that her museum was not going to happen. Not anytime soon, at least. 
So with her handy list, she is still determined to buy a picture a day, even though the war is breaking out. And not to mention she is Jewish. Time is ticking and Hitler's army is getting closer and closer. And the artists are basically taking whatever they can for these artworks. They're probably not bargaining much, honestly, right. and if at all. And she is definitely capitalizing on that. It's a Blitzkrieg bargain. <laughs> When she's done, she's acquired 10 Picassos, 40 Ernst, 3 Man Rays, 3 Dollies, among many, many others for only $40,000, which is like $770,000 today. And this is a priceless collection. They don't even know how much this would go for nowadays. I mean, millions, millions. Like we were saying, it's basically the modern art wing at any museum. She got a steal, to say the least. Peggy was not going to leave Europe without these artworks. If they were confiscated by the Nazis, they would be considered Mm. degenerate art and they would likely be destroyed. She also, listeners, if you remember, marries Max Ernst out of convenience since he was a German citizen and he kept ending up in those French jails and determined camps. (laughs) So she ended up shipping them to the U.S. in a crate labeled as household items to get them through customs. (laughs) So, okay, okay. I'm imagining basically you have the entire modern art wing of any museum, like I keep saying, just nestled in with casserole dishes and like socks and bras. That's crazy to imagine. It really (laughs) is. But she actually first tried getting the Louvre to safe keep them for her. So the Louvre is the home of the Mona Lisa in Paris. And it's also the world's largest art museum. And they were pretty much just like, "Mm, we don't think these are worth saving. Okay, bye-bye. And they bop her in the head with a baguette. They bopped her in the head with a baguette. I'm sure. <laughs> like like baguette yeah. bopping, like boop. Yeah, like whack-a-mole. Sweet. No, no, piggy. Yeah. Bye. Yeah, boop, those crumbs boop. get in your eyes. That's Zach. not fun. <laughs> what? So yes, they basically booped her with a baguette. And she's just like, okay, great. Yeah. Let me get my bras. All right, so Peggy escapes Europe just in time in 1941, and she heads back to her hometown of New York City. New York City. New York City. And while she did want to start a museum originally before the Nazis came rolling in, she ends up starting a new gallery called Art of the Century. And while we don't know if she really (laughs) was influenced by Monop, they certainly share some similarities. It was also four blocks away from the Monop, but who's counting? Who's counting blocks? Well, it too was a very unconventional gallery, not only in the art that Peggy was displaying, but the gallery itself. So you may have seen curved walls or paintings hung off of the wall that you could actually pivot. You could actually pivot the paintings, kind of turn them. And sometimes music would be playing, and other times they would pipe in the sound of trains. For those kooky surrealists getting all wacky. Yeah. Well, so you could experience the wackiness, right? Yeah. Even the chairs themselves were works of art. Even the ch- some of the chairs displayed works of art. All of this was divided into four distinct spaces. There was the abstract gallery, a surrealist gallery, a commercial gallery... And a kinetic gallery where Sandy would have displayed his work, Mm. his kinetic sculptures. Yeah. So say what you will about Peggy. Maybe she was influenced by the Baroness's ideas. But the gallery was quite the spectacle. And Peggy was showing all kinds of artists that no one had seen before. I mean, she's basically combining these scenes from Paris with this new budding American art scene. So Sandy was already established before he mingled with Peggy. By this time, he was very prolific. He Mm -hmm. was blurring the line between craft and fine art. We already fed you! (laughs) So he was blurring the line between 
between craft and fine art with his mobiles, his circus, and he was also making jewelry that had a sculptural flair. Mm. His work fit in so well with the look and design of Art of the Century that, I mean, Peggy could not display him. You know, maybe put away a few of those Picassos to make room for the Sandman. The Sandman? The Sandman. Calling him the Sandman now? Okay. Anyway, anyway, anyway. Uh, Stephanie, I've been thinking about the mobiles, the right? Mobiles, about yes. how they like spin around. You're telling me about them just a few minutes ago. Right. Okay. So I was thinking if I made my own mobile. Okay. Instead of the little guitar picks that it has. Yeah. It would have lots of little hands and they would just okay. like, I would prop it up on my shoulders. Okay. okay? Instead of my shoulders. Okay. And I would go about my day and these yeah. little hands would give me motivational butt smacks. <laughs> what? Yeah. Like good game. <laughs> Butt spanks? Yeah, butt spanks. Motivational butt smacks. Okay? Good game. What? Okay. Good game. Okay. Like that, you know, to keep me motivated and positive throughout the day. But then <laughs> that made me think of if Calder did that and a strong breeze made its way into art of the century. Okay. And it started spanking the Picasso right in the naked cubist butts. You know? <laughs> what? Spank. Spank. Okay. A lot of butts, a lot of, a lot of butts. A lot of butts, a lot of spanking. Okay. Let's, let's, uh. Well, you want to move past this? You don't want to linger? No, I don't want to linger. Okay. Good game. All right. So back to Peggy and Sandy. Peggy was just like, I gotta have a Calder. Mm. We know Peggy at this point. She loves drama. She loves being extra. So she somehow got her hands on a pair of handmade Sandy earrings that are mm. basically giant mobiles, like mm. a miniature version of his mobiles as earrings. Yeah, I do not know how you would wear these listeners. I like them. No, you would take a sip of your wine and you would dip them into the wine glass. You'd take a bite of your risotto. There'd be risotto on your Calder oh my gosh. earring. It's making it sway in the okay. wrong direction. Okay. I think they're cool. We'll, we'll just disagree. Okay. Okay? okay, that's fine. But they're beautiful. I like them. Anyway, Peggy... She needed something else by Calder. She, These... she was over the risotto-encrusted uh, <laughs> earrings that she okay. has. She's like, yo, Sandy, Sandman. Sandman, here we go. You made me those gorgeous earrings, but <laughs> could you, like, make me a headboard? Because I'm having trouble sleeping. Get it? Because you're the Sandman. Yeah. Mr. Sandman, bring me a dream. Aw, uh, gee, thanks, Sandy. I'll be waiting, she okay. says. Okay. He doesn't get around to making it, and she finally confronts okay. him at, like, a gallery, and she's okay. just like, yo, Sandman, yeah, now she's where getting, yeah. is my bed? Okay. I needed it. Like yesterday. So she got a she got a heap and helping of side eye from Sandy's <laughs> wife, right? Yeah. Honestly, Sandy probably just burst out laughing, like, okay, all right, sure, pegs. Get that to you next week. And then they're <laughs> fighting for a week, him and his wife, you know? And he t- he brings out the motivational butt smack uh <laughs> mobile and she no. It's the wrong time, wrong place. He's like, I think this is gonna cheer her up. Does not no, work. Wrong. No. Sorely mistaken. Okay. Peggy closed the doors to Art of the Century after five years in 1947 and was pretty much already moving into another deal of the century, which was an 18th century palazzo that she found for sale on the Grand Canal in Venice, Italy. Even though this is where she would spend the rest of her life, the influence of Art of the Century continues reverberating to this day. With this move to Venice, Peggy had plans for a new venture, but this time it wouldn't be a commercial gallery. 
Her new palazzo was to house her collection and eventually become a museum. She even invited the public to visit it while she still lived there. She also had the Peggy effect on Venice and Italian artists in the same way she did in New York City at Art of the Century. Before Peggy opened her museum, when you thought of Venice and art, you may have thought of Venetian Renaissance masters like Titian or Tintoretto. But now we can also think of modern artists like Sandy or Picasso. She's living among these artworks in a jewel of a city, which brings us to the piece we are talking about today. Finally. <laughs> After like a cast of characters and all kinds of transatlantic adventures. Of yeah. Well, anyway, this piece is unique to Peggy, unique to Sandy, and unique to Venice. Silver metal lines catch the light from the window, making them shimmer in the moonlight or sunlight. As you get closer, the lines come together to form all kinds of different flora and fauna. The slender silver lines have been hammered, so there's indentations in the metal that reflect the light in several different directions, almost making them sparkle as if underwater. In Peggy's turquoise bedroom, it definitely looked right at home, as if it existed under shallow water on a sunny day, when the sun rays penetrate the surface of the water and shine on everything underneath. Fish and dragonflies are suspended separately from the rest of the sculpture, so if there is even a hint of a breeze, the fish and dragonflies come to life. It is incredible how fitting it is for this work to have ended up in Venice, of all places, a city of light and water as the sculpture itself seems to float. Stephanie, we're here, we're at the Art Slice Museum, on top of the Art Slice Hilltop, surrounded by the Candy and Condom Moat. The freshly built Charles Birchfield Biodome is glistening in the dusk. Ooh. And we have Sandy's, Mr. Sandman's, (laughs) silver bedhead with us. To bring it back with us, we had to sneak it away in a camouflaged gondola. We had to serpentine through hundreds of giant, celestial, heavenly cruise ships. Okay. <laughs> unloading millions of tourists into Venice's crumbling streets. Oh. We had to maniacally check archaic maps, running into dozens of dead ends until we found the secret canal, which is really just a left and then another left and then like a, a right. You really can't miss it if you, <laughs> if you know what you're looking for. But this canal leads us straight to the interdimensional river that feeds directly into this very art slice candy and condom moat. <laughs> yes. And we have to decide. Well, actually, I don't even really, I don't, I don't even think I want to ask you. Why don't you want to ask me? Because I already me? know what you're going to say. Oh, do you? Yeah. Do you? Yeah. Okay. What? What am I going to say? You're going to say, oh, Russell, but it deserves to be in the Peggy Guggenheim Museum in Venice, Italy, where it was intended to be. <laughs> and you're just trying to take something from a place it doesn't belong. And I don't want to have to repatriate it later. Ooh. So, Stephanie. Oh, my God. <laughs> I got you, didn't I? <laughs> Well, you're wrong. I'm wrong. Oh God! You are no, so no. No, I was I was right until <laughs> I said that, and then you're like, nope. I'm gonna throw a left jab. I don't know what a left jab is, but you are wrong. Okay, no. so you're gonna take it from the, the, are... the Peggy Guggenheim collection. Listen, obviously, the Art Slice Museum is in the future. Venice is no, sinking. The Art Slice this Museum is, is no... here. It's now. Venice is sinking. Okay. 
We're going to rent a big boat, drive up to the PGC, we're going to break in, take it, zoom away. So I took you by surprise, huh? No, I think you I think you had I, I think you had this planned. I think you you saw where I was gonna go and then you had an option A and an option B and you went with option B. I have an option C. We leave it in Venice. Okay. It goes down with Venice, okay? Ride or die. Okay. PGC underwater. Okay, I like this. I like this one. It's gonna happen. All right. I'm gonna take advantage of technology. We're gonna bring Sandy back from the dead. I'm gonna commission a piece. Mm. I'm going to have my own silver bed head. Okay. My own. Your own. Steph. Steph and Sandy collab. Okay. Very excited about okay. this. You didn't see that one coming. There's some problems. <laughs> Which part? Well, <laughs> besides for the fact that, I mean, I don't want to get gruesome, but there's probably not a lot of him left. I'm not sure what sort of zombie. I mean, he had those gristled hands. Oh, my God. That's I like don't the know only thing gonna... in the coffin are the hands. I don't. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe you can put them on a ghost body and they can do the work. No, I'm thinking something cleaner, more like movie appropriate. Something easy. An easy movie ending. You're just taking the DNA, you're cloning it somehow. And somehow it's Sandy with all of this life experience and all of this artistic experience. Okay. And he's okay with having been brought back from the dead to make me, me, Stephanie from Art Slice, from my Art Slice Museum. He's totally cool with this. This is the world that Plan C is going to thrive in. Okay. 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 Wow, we are... Um, okay, so what do you like about the work? I like that it's shiny. Okay. Che- check one off the old uh, Stephanie checklist. I'm not too surprised by that. That, that may sure surprise not. you. Um, well, I mean, it's shiny for several different reasons, right? It's made mm-hmm. of silver. Yeah, shiny material. Yeah. yeah, but it's also what Sandy is doing to the silver. So he uses this hammering technique that makes the light, any kind of light, artificial or natural light, bounce off of it. Now, are you sure, different... Stephanie, he's not just using his gristled fingers, his little gristled mitt paws to, <laughs> claw, peel, claw away. to peel and meld the uh, the silver by himself? I'm not sure. Okay. That is quite the Okay, image. but yeah, but what you're saying <laughs> is basically he is hammering the silver, this mm-hmm. thin silver. Silver yeah. to create multiple planes on this metal silver wire so that it reflects light in different in yes. different directions. Kind of like a disco ball in a way. <laughs> okay, okay. Less like dramatic. Yeah, yeah all right. <laughs> I gotcha. That is the first aspect that really catches my attention. So why don't we back up a little bit and describe the materials, describe what we're looking at, because this is a sculpture. It's not as easy as talking about just like a painting on the wall. Right. But it's also not a typical sculpture it's either. Because it's it's sandy. It's the sandman. It is the sandman, and he is very unique, just like this piece. Okay, so let's just start with scale so we Mm -hmm. know exactly how much we're looking at. So first of all, we should say it was meant to be an actual headboard to sit at the head of a bed. Yes. Okay. If you're Peggy Guggenheim, this would be your headboard. Okay. It is about five by four feet. Mm -hmm. So It's pretty big. While it is a sculpture, technically Mm -hmm. speaking, it reads more like a traditional painting. Yes. On a wall. Or... Or furniture, a type of furniture, like decorative furniture. Furniture. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Why? I think I actually think <laughs> I don't want to get sidetracked, but I do think his work has a link to furniture and craft. Okay. We discussed craft yes. and how it is a little bit different than art, but he perfectly shows that it overlaps. Yeah. There is there, there those lines are blurry. Yes. And we can also think of this work in layers, like a painting. Mm-hmm. It's a little sculpture, though. But it reads that way mm-hmm. because while it is the same material, 
silver. It's all silver. It is made up of layers like a painting. Or like a collage. So if you've ever made a collage at home, you cut out a piece. Maybe that's the background. You cut out another piece. That could be the foreground or the middle ground. You cut out (laughs) another piece. That's the foreground. Right. So these are, you know, while it may not be three separate pieces, it's actually a lot of different pieces, but it does have that layered effect, although it is three dimensional. So depending on where you're standing, it does look different like a sculpture. You're just not able to circle it entirely in the round like you would an Augusta Savage piece. Right. Or it's not like his mobile pieces, which you would watch float and move in space. You are looking at it from only a few different angles. 180 degrees. We move around it Mm -hmm. as much as we can. So this is a very organic composition. The lines are very organic. They're hardly ever a straight line. They're very curvy, very soft. But metal. Yeah, but that's that's our Sandy. He yeah. makes a hard medium look soft yeah. and playful Just and like approachable. Just like his hard gristled hands. <laughs> and how funny he is he? He has he takes his hard gristled hands and he he hands you a little duck or a little jewelry. <laughs> oh, stop! So it's basically a circular composition, mm-hmm. but all of the forms within it are spilling outside of it. So. We have a combination of sea and land, Mm -hmm. fauna, so we have maybe a fern, some seaweed. It feels spontaneous, Mm -hmm. first glance, right? You don't think about the fact that this probably took hours to Mm -hmm. do all the things he had to do to the silver. Yeah, yeah. You do not get the sense at all, listeners, that he is working with metal and bending metal and hammering metal. It feels like an illustration that was drawn like very whimsically. Exactly. Like, oh, here's a fern. You know what? I'm going to add another fern. Oh, there's a fish. Oh, whoops. There's a flower. Yeah, it looks Like like something you would do in like exactly. 10 minutes on the phone. Yes. The lines just kind of guide you. They're curved. It's just easy to, to just get lost in it. That easy flow of the curved lines is is really, it's, it's also tense because of the way he hammers it and the way it glitters and the okay. way it kind of reflects light back at you. It's a very chameleon-like piece because it does stick off the wall. There is a shadow behind it. So that whimsical drawing in the wrong light, you can get lost. You don't really know what's going on. So because it's off the wall, I'm glad you mentioned that. It adds another layer to it where we can get lost and we're not 100% sure what we're looking at because Mm -hmm. of the shadows. The composition itself doesn't 100% coalesce. And I think the lighting and the shadows adds a whole other layer to it. Right. While it is a, a static wall piece, it does move. I mean, it really does move. In the sense that shadows weave through it, right? And then, like we mentioned before, the reflective metals, it it makes it difficult to know what you're looking at. He was able to bring in that kinetic work that he was Mm -hmm. so interested in into this very static piece, this piece that just hangs on a wall like a painting. Something that may be overlooked and that I only thought of when I was looking at some of these detail pictures, which we're going to share with you, listeners, is that he used screws to keep this piece together. He didn't solder the metal. Oh, he, so he didn't, didn't solder it down and use screws. Right. So what is that, Russell? What is soldering? Soldering is basically like a mini welding. <laughs> like oh, so welding you metal the, together. You would, yeah. you would melt the metal together yeah. and that, then it's combined. It's all one piece. Well, mm-hmm. this is really smart that he used screws instead because if a part gets damaged, you can just easily remove it make another one and reattach it. But also, I think maybe the screws are a little bit looser than the soldering. Yeah. So it does move a little. It wiggles a little. If you got big stompy feet, you're stomping on by, it's going to wiggle on you. going to get a little disco ball effect going. A little bit bumping. A little bump and grind. Okay. Uh, All right. We won't get into it. Elephant in the room. Let's talk about it, okay? (laughs) It was a headboard for Peggy Guggenheim. A notorious playgirl. 
Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So there may have been some bump and a grind, and we're going to leave it at that. The we're disco ball on. might have been uh, reflecting a lot of moonlight in the middle of the night. But okay, I mean, you don't you don't have to uh, be engaged in amorous activities to really <laughs> appreciate this, right? I can imagine looking up at this bef- at night before you go to bed. It hangs right above your head, and as you're going to sleep, if you're like me, you have all this residual, like fragmented pieces of the day popping into your brain before you go to sleep. And I can imagine how meditative it would be to see the moonlight bouncing off of the Venetian canals. Fuck mm. you for having that kind of money. And bounce back <laughs> onto this this beautiful dream catcher-like composition. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I say dream catcher because it, it does catch your dreams. Like dreams are fleeting and they change. And this piece is fleeting and it changes, even though it's static. And that connects for me, looking at water in the in the evening, looking at stars at night, that connects to the magic of synchronicity. These moments that you come by just, just by chance and how magical those things can be if your eyes are open and you're willing to accept those things. Yes, this piece is one that you can get lost in. Yeah. You kind of lose yourself in the lines. Your eyes kind of follow the lines and mm-hmm. then you end up here and you end up there. That's also why it's really hard to talk about. There's not one central point. You know, if you're a human, you can you can recognize that that experience just being in in, in the world and seeing something like the moon and the, and the sun out at the same yeah, time right. or just seeing it happen to catch a shooting star when you're just looking, you know, up in the night sky. Those are these magical moments that stick with you. And I think like Calder's ability to be playful, his ability to be open to that experience and open to just having fun, I think allows, and and not honestly not being tied down. I mean, he made jewelry, he made mobiles. Um, Some of his mobiles were fucking weird. They're not like the ones you think. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But he does a really good job of it, right? So just him being so playful, I think allows for him to step in and out of these different artistic styles and just be really open to whatever that piece, whatever comes of that piece, whatever comes out of that piece. You know, I can imagine him hammering away at this metal and being like, okay, I really like this. Let me keep doing this. And we'll just see what happens with it. This might seem like a stretch, but honestly, I feel like that same drive could be applied to Peggy. Yes, she was wealthy. Yes, she was privileged, but she was open to making those connections. Right. I mean, how many of her peers in the same social economical class would have been like, ew, yeah. surrealist yeah. art? Ew. I'm just going to go to the Kentucky Derby and uh, break my monocles. Okay, that's not where I was going with that. Okay. <laughs> uh, but, but basically, like, yeah. how many of those people would have just turned their noses up at it? And like, I'm not spending my money on that. Yeah, I'm not my... hanging out with fucking Marcel Duchamp, weirdo, no. Actually, speaking of Marcel... Peggy was super lucky to have met Marcel. Yeah. And that's all I'm yeah. like, like, I feel like he that made... That was her sun and moon on the equator yes. moment. <laughs> Marcel was and is the sun and moon to Peggy Guggenheim. <laughs> yeah. But you have to like, you have to get on the boat to get there, right? True. Right. She was she open to it. She got on the it. boat. Yeah. She was open to it. And that, I think that is why these things happened to her aside from the money, aside from the privilege, aside from all of that. Peggy was open to making those connections. She was open to the magic of synchronicity. <laughs> so, I mean, this piece has grown on me. I Yay. look, I walked past I walked past hey, a Calder. Hey, hey. I'll walk past the Sandman any day of the week. I do I do really enjoy this work. By the way, listeners, whoever keeps up his webpage. Oh my gosh. They have everything. Numero uno. They have everything. On point. Do yourself a favor. Dig into his work. There is 
just so much work that he's made that is all very different and is all very magical. I've spent a lot of time with this piece and my first impression was shiny, like I said before, but that's the child in me, right? Mm -hmm. The child in me gasps in delight at the sight of it, but the adult in me stays for the layers and the complexities that the material has to offer. Yeah, the kinetic sort of ambience to it. Well, the way that Sandy has handled it is just mm-hmm. is brilliant, mm-hmm. and I stay for it. I'm here for it. Absolutely. And if you're there for it, listeners, or if you're not there for it, listeners, please let us know what you thought of this piece or any of the other work that we've discussed in previous episodes. What you did or didn't like about it, and if it would go in your museum. If you're new to Art Slice, you can also send in any of the art assignments from previous episodes, and we will post them to our website and our Instagram page. You don't need to be an artist to send them in. It's fine if you are. It's just a way of rubbing those creative juices together. (laughs) Stop saying rubbing. Send them all to artslicepod at gmail.com. Listeners, we love hearing from you. We try to respond to everything as soon as we can. So if you'd like to talk about a work that inspired you or you'd like to suggest a topic or artwork or you just want to say hi, we'd love to hear from you. Honestly, these episodes are not easy to make and your messages put smiles on our tired, tired, sleepy faces. (laughs) If you're enjoying Art Slice and you want to help us out, you can do any or all of the following. You can buy a three pack of Art Slice stickers. You can throw a few bucks at us on Buy Me a Coffee. You can subscribe to us on all of the things. Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, YouTube. And you could write a review on your pod player of choice. All of this helps us please the algorithm god. Yes. And or goddesses. (laughs) (laughs) And actually, listeners, because of all your subscribing and reviewing, we actually, we've been on the top of the art history thing for a few weeks now. On top. On top. Uh, I mean, not the top top, but you know, there. And we're in the mix. We're in the mix. And that's that's all due to you. And we, we really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yeah. Last week, we released our Art Slice Sampler. It's up on our podcast feed, and it's on our YouTube with pretty little images. Yes, and it's very shareable, might I add. So, <laughs> Like a sampler. <laughs> yeah. If you have a friend who you think might enjoy the show, but they don't really have the time to commit to a full hour of one of our full episodes, <laughs> this would be the thing to send them. Thanks again to you musicians, Rob Lynch and Jonathan Hughes. Um, they were like, hey, go ahead and use some more music from our album, Public Private, if you want to. And I was like, hell yeah. <laughs> um, it's a good album. Everybody check it out. We will link them in our show notes. You can also find it on Spotify. And thanks again. We also wanted to give a special thanks to photographer Steph Black for letting us use her images of Sandy's silver bedhead. It's so hard to find good images, listeners. You have no idea. So thank you so much, Steph. The other Steph, not you, Steph. But also thank you, Steph. <laughs> okay. Um, so yes, that, thank you, Steph. <laughs> so that's going to do it for us today. We will see you next time, listeners. And no. And no. Your kid could not have sculpted that. Bye. Bye.